0: What a delight it has been over these past several days to revel in the truth of the absolute sovereignty of God. I pray that your time at this conference has equipped you to confess, along with Jonathan Edwards, that this truth is exceedingly pleasant, bright, and sweet. Edwards said, absolute sovereignty is what I love To ascribe to God. I pray that you can confess that, that your soul delights in and rests in entrusting all things into the hands of a loving, wise, and sovereign God who works all things after the counsel of his own will, unto the glory of his own name. And I want to continue celebrating that truth with you, in particular the sovereignty of God in the redemption of his people through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to do that by defending the controversial doctrine of particular redemption, the biblical teaching that Jesus' death atoned for the sins of only God's elect people and not all without exception. We'll look to several passages of Scripture this morning, but I want to begin by reading the first 10 verses of John chapter 17, as so many of our thoughts will retreat back to this glorious prayer of our great high priest. John chapter 17, starting in verse 1. And lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the son may glorify you even as you gave him authority over all flesh that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life that they may know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me I have given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. And then skip down to verse 20. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their Word, Oh, God, give grace, magnify the worth of your son, bring benefit to your people, we pray in his name. Amen. Now, when I say that we believe in a particular redemption, I mean that Jesus' death did not reserve empty seats in heaven to be filled by whoever would claim their seat by believing in him. Jesus died to pay for the sins of specific sinners in particular, those whom the Father gave to the Son, those whom Christ, the Good Shepherd, knew by name. The question is, in whose place did Christ stand as a substitutionary sacrifice when he bore the full fury of his Father's righteous wrath against sin? And the Bible's answer is, Only those who will never bear that wrath themselves, namely, the elect alone. Now, why in the world would I choose to address this topic? Why should believers in the sovereignty of God insist on a particular redemption? Well, the crosswork of the Lord Jesus Christ is the very heart of the gospel, the Son of God has destroyed the power of sin. He has purchased the redemption by which sinners may be freed from divine judgment. Which means that we are not straying very far from the very heart of the Christian faith when we ask, for whom has Christ accomplished these things? In other words, the doctrine of the extent of the atonement cannot be divorced from the nature of the atonement itself. What you believe about for whom Christ died has necessary implications about what you believe the atonement itself actually is. What do I mean? If you deny a particular redemption you wind up fundamentally altering the very character of what the cross is. In a real sense, you change Christianity at its most foundational moment. Jesus died for everybody. Christ is atoned for the sins of all without exception. Oh, well then is everybody saved? With will all without exception escape punishment for their sins and go to heaven? And the response comes back, oh, no, I'm I'm not a universalist. Jesus himself says that people go to eternal destruction. So Jesus' death doesn't save people. Well, he died to provide salvation, to make it possible for everyone to be saved. But those who don't believe in him forfeit that salvation. And so what happens? The atonement gets reimagined to be not an efficacious accomplishment which guarantees salvation, but a resistible provision which makes salvation possible. Jesus died to make it possible for sinners to be saved, not to save sinners. And sinners' unbelief overrules His intent to save them, almost as if the sinners were sovereign and not Him. See, it sounds good and magnanimous and even loving to say Jesus died to save everybody. But when you tease out the implications of a universal atonement, you recognize if you universalize the extent of the atonement without universalizing the extent of salvation itself, you empty the cross of its sovereign saving power. You make something other than Christ's death the decisive and determinative cause of salvation. And that is not good news for sinners. But when you proclaim the Bible's teaching that Christ's atonement is not an indefinite provision by which he makes salvation possible, but a definite achievement by which he makes salvation inevitable, When you proclaim that the Bible's teaching that though Jesus does not die for every single individual without exception, every single individual he does die for by that very death is infallibly assured to be saved from sin and brought home to heaven, well then you begin to taste the sweetness of the doctrine of particular redemption. When you recognize that the atonement does not need faith added to it to give it its saving power, but that the atonement of itself is so savingly powerful that it purchases the very faith that unites us to Christ and the blessings of salvation in Him, well, then you feel the strength of the cross. Then you can rest your whole soul on the cross. Then you see the glory of a perfect redemption. And so we insist upon a particular redemption not because we're trying to exclude people from the benefits of redemption. Like, well, we believe in a limited atonement so and it's not for you, so you go stand over there. No. Our chief concern is to safeguard the achievements of Christ's cross from being robbed of their sovereign power, robbed of what makes the cross precious and sweet to us sinners who need a perfect redemption to stake all our hope and confidence upon. And so that's our burden as believers, in particular, redemption, to protect the power and the glory and the sweetness of the cross from the unlikely enemy of a universal atonement which undermines all those things. And the way to defend it is not to engage in a game of proof text volleyball, Well, this text says all. Well, this text says many. This text says world. This text says sheep. That helps no one. Instead, properly understanding the extent of the atonement requires that we set it in the context of the Bible's teaching on the design and nature of the atonement. Whom the atonement is for is truly a function of what the atonement is and what God has accomplished or designed to the atonement to accomplish. And so in light of that, I want to consider three biblical truths concerning the nature of Christ's mission and the work he accomplished, which demand the doctrine of particular redemption and which will vindicate the doctrine of the absolute sovereignty of God, even and especially in the son's work of redemption. The first biblical truth that demands a particular redemption is, number one, the unity of our triune God. The unity of our triune God. All three persons of the Trinity are perfectly united in their will to save a particular people. And we see that in several places in John 17, but I'll highlight just verse 2 again. Father, glorify your Son even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. You see, the plan of salvation did not begin when the Son entered into the world. In coming to pay for sin and accomplish righteousness, Jesus wasn't haphazardly embarking on a mission of his own devising. No, the Son's mission to accomplish redemption was born out of the eternal Trinitarian plan of salvation. In perfect unity, the Son was sent by the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit to save those sinners whom the Father had chosen. That's why Jesus described his ministry in John 6, 38, as doing the will of the Father who sent him. When he speaks of laying down his life as a sacrifice for sin, he says in John 10:18, "This commandment I received from my Father." And in John 17:4, on the night of his betrayal, he declares that he has accomplished the work his Father gave him to do. Whatever the Son intended to accomplish on his saving mission, it was precisely that purpose for which the Father had sent him. There is a perfect unity of purpose and intention in the saving will of the Father and the saving will of the Son. And so the question is, is the Father's will, saving will, universal or is it particular? Has the Father chosen to save everyone, all without exception? Well, no, Romans 9 makes that abundantly clear. Romans 9.13, Jacob I loved and Esau I what? Hated. Verse 18, so then, he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Verse 21, God is the potter and we are the clay. And as the potter, verses 22 and 23, the father has fashioned both vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy. In his inscrutable wisdom, the father has not chosen to save all without exception. So if the Father's election is particular and not universal, and if the Father and Son are perfectly united in their saving will and purpose, indeed, since the Son's saving mission is nothing other than the Father's appointed means to save those whom He's chosen, then it is impossible that the Son's atonement should be universal and not particular. The Son's Incarnation and atonement are birthed out of the Father's choice to save a particular people. And I love the way Robert Raymond captures this. He says, it is unthinkable to believe that Christ would say, I recognize, Father, that your election and your salvific intentions terminate upon only a portion of mankind. But because my love is more inclusive and expansive than yours, I am not satisfied to die only for those whom you have elected. I'm going to die for everyone. That is unthinkable. And yet that is exactly what you must confess if you deny a particular redemption. Said another way, if election is particular and the atonement is universal, then the Father and the Son are at cross purposes with one another. But cross purposes with one another? The Father and the Son, those who subsist in the single, undivided, divine essence, divided in their saving purposes, contradicting one another even, it simply cannot be. Not only does Jesus himself say, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, but you would sooner divide the Trinity than find the Father and the Son with different wills trying to accomplish different things with different people. And yet, isn't that exactly what you have in Arminianism? The Father chooses those whom He foresees will choose Him, Group A. The Son atones for everyone in history without exception, Group B. And then the Spirit works to persuade the hearts of only those people who hear the gospel, Group C. That is a divided trinity. When you tease out the implications, you recognize a universal atonement fatally undermines Trinitarianism itself, Christianity itself. It introduces dissonance and discord where there can only be harmony. It is to strike at the very heart of the Christian faith. Unity in the Trinity demands that the Father, Son, and Spirit will to save the same people. And what is the Father's will as Jesus understood it? John 6, 39. This is the will of Him who sent me, that of all that He has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. You see, there exists a group of chosen individuals whom the Father has given to the Son. And it is on their behalf, he says, that the son accomplishes his redemptive work. And Jesus talks about this everywhere. Just two verses earlier in John 6, 37, he says, all that the father gives me will come to me. Who's going to come to Christ in faith? You say whoever exercises their free will to do so. It's not what Jesus says. Jesus says the ones who will come to him in faith are the ones the Father chose and gave to the Son. As many as were appointed to eternal life believe. Acts 13, 48. In John 10, 14, he says he's the good shepherd who knows his sheep. And in verse 15 says he lays down his life for the sheep. And then just a few verses later in John 10, 29, he says, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. And so Jesus identifies those whom the Father has given him to be his sheep. This is the same group. And then in 10.15, he says, I lay down my life for the sheep. I die for the sheep. I die for those whom the Father has given me. He's telling us as plainly as he possibly can, I die for those whom the Father has chosen. You say, yeah, but... He doesn't die. It doesn't say he doesn't die for the goats. Sure it does. John 10, 26, I die for the sheep. He looks at the Pharisees says, says you're not my sheep. So does he die for the Pharisees? No. And then back to our text, John 17, the, the Savior's high priestly prayer on the eve of his crucifixion and as he prepares to undertake the capstone of his work as mediator, he intercedes before the Father on behalf of those for whom he performs his priestly ministry of atonement. And in verse 2, he says, you gave the Son authority over all flesh that to all whom you have given him, there's that phrase again, he may give eternal life. That's interesting, isn't it? If Jesus believed in a universal atonement, you might have expected him to say, you gave me authority over all flesh that to all flesh I may give eternal life. But now, in distinction from all flesh, the Son exercises his authority to give eternal life only to those whom the Father has given him. Verse 6, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. So again, in distinction from the world, but to those whom the Father gave him, or those whom the Father gave him out of the world, the disciples were part of this elect number that the Father had given to the Son. And he explicitly says, they were yours. Everything belongs to God. Cattle on a thousand hills, to say they were yours in a distinctive way is to refer to election. They were yours in this special sense, in a way the rest of the world is not his. God set his love on his people and made them his own from all eternity. They were yours and you gave them to me. And I lay my life down for the sheep that you gave me. And then John 17, 9, he once again explicitly distinguishes those whom the Father had given him from the rest of the world. He he says, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. You say, that's only the disciples. No, no, verse 20, I ask on behalf not of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word. That's the elect of all ages. And so if the Son has come to do the will of the Father, and if the will of the Father is that the Son should give eternal life to all whom the Father has given him, and if the father didn't give him the world, but only some out of the world, then the redemption accomplished by the son is, is particular and not universal. And given that, it's not surprising to read of the many ways in which scripture identifies a particular people as the beneficiaries of Christ's crosswork. We've mentioned the sheep, John 10, 11 to 15. He calls them the many, Mark ten forty five. his friends. John 15, 13, the church of God, Acts 20, 28, the church in Ephesians 5, 25, and almost as plainly as he can be said, the elect in Romans 8, 32 and 33. And so we can summarize this first point this way. By virtue of their own unity of essence, the Father, Son and Holy Spirit are perfectly united in their saving will and purpose. Christ has been sent by the Father in the power of the Spirit to save no more and no fewer than the Father chooses and the Spirit regenerates. The Father has elected some and not all. The Spirit regenerates some and not all. To suggest that Christ has atoned for all and not some is to put the persons of the Trinity entirely at odds with one another it is to be forced to say that the will of the Son is not the will of the Father and the Spirit. And that not only threatens the consubstantiality of the persons of the Trinity, but it flatly contradicts Christ's own explicit statements that he had undertaken his saving mission precisely to do the will of his Father. As the Father has given to the Son a particular people out of the world, it's for these, his sheep, his own, the church, that Christ lays down his life for the unity of our triune god demands a particular redemption a second biblical truth that demands a particular redemption is the faithfulness of our great high priest the faithfulness of our great high priest hebrews 2:17 calls jesus a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to god to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Hebrews 3.1 calls him the apostle and high priest of our confession. And in speaking this way of Christ as our high priest, the book of Hebrews borrows the conceptual framework of the Old Testament sacrificial system as the foundation for understanding Christ's work of atonement. And one area in which that framework sheds light on the extent of the atonement is the inseparable unity between the priest's work of sacrifice and intercession. Of sacrifice and intercession. On Israel's Day of Atonement, the yearly pinnacle of the sacrificial system, Leviticus 16.9 tells us that the high priest was to slay one of two goats as a sacrifice for the sins of the people. But that wasn't the end of the priest's work. Leviticus 16.15 says, Then he shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering which is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. The high priest was not only to slay the goat of sacrifice, his ministry was not complete until he also, in a work of intercession, sprinkled the blood of the goat on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. And that was true for all of the Levitical sacrifices that required the death of animals. You see it throughout the first seven chapters, slaughter and sprinkling, sacrifice and intercession. And what we take away from that is that the two priestly functions of sacrifice and intercession are inextricably linked. The offering of the sacrificial animal on the bronze altar outside the tabernacle was inseparable from the application of the animal's blood upon the golden altar of incense. They are two sides of the same atoning coin. It could never be the case that a priest would offer a sacrifice on behalf of one sinner and then fail to intercede for that worshiper by not sprinkling his blood, the animal's blood, on the altar. That would be to abandon the work of the priesthood. John Owen wrote, To offer and to intercede, to sacrifice and to pray, are both acts of the same priestly office, and both are required in him who is a priest, so that if he omit either of these, he cannot be a faithful priest for them. If either he does not offer for them, or not intercede for the success of his sacrifice on their behalf, he is deficient in the discharge of his office. And that means these two priestly functions are coextensive. The scope of the priest's sacrifice is identical to the scope of his intercession. The people for whom he would slay the goat are the people for whom he would sprinkle the blood of the goat. It is not the case that the high priest of Israel would say, sacrifice the, the goat as a provisional atonement on behalf of the entire Gentile world and then only intercede with the sprinkling of blood on behalf of Israel alone. No, the high priest offered for everyone for whom he would intercede. Then he interceded for everyone for whom he offered, the people of God alone. Well, the same principle applies to the unity of the twofold high priestly ministry of Christ. After offering himself as the perfect sacrifice, the high priest, our high priest, entered into the Holy of Holies to intercede for his people. Hebrews 9:24, into heaven itself, where he appears before the Father. Christ's sacrificial offering of himself on the cross is inextricably linked to his intercessory work in the presence of God on behalf of everyone whom he died for. And as a faithful high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ intercedes for everyone for whom he died, and he died for everyone for whom he intercedes. You see that clearly in Romans chapter 8, verse 34, where Paul coordinates the death, resurrection and present intercession of Christ. He says, Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Each of those are the functions of the unified priestly work of Jesus, which means they are coextensive. And more than that, who are the us for whom Christ intercedes? Or are they the same us of Romans 8.32, where Paul says, he who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Those who are given all things by the Father through the intercessory work of Christ are the very same ones for whom the Father gave Christ over to death. And so the key question is does Christ intercede on behalf of all without exception? Or the elect alone? Is Christ in heaven asking his Father to bring home to heaven those the Father has not chosen to save? If he was, we would be forced to say that the father refuses to grant those earnest intercessory requests of the son because the non-elect will not finally be saved. But can you even conceive of that kind of scenario? The father refusing to grant the earnest prayers of his beloved son in whom he is well pleased for the salvation of those for whom Christ shed his precious blood? It's unthinkable. Father, I died for them. I shed my blood for them. I paid for their sins. Please save them and bring them to us in heaven. And the father says, no, my son, I will not. The implications of a universal atonement are disastrous. Not only would it drive a wedge between the will of the father and the will of the son, undermining the Trinity, but it demeans the worth of the blood of Christ. To say that the infinite merit of the blood of Christ is an insufficient ground for the Father to grant the Son's request. Father, I shed my blood for them. Your blood does not avail with me, my son. That's blasphemy. But besides all of that, Jesus himself tells us who he intercedes for in our text in his high priestly prayer of John 17 on the eve of his sacrificial offering Christ the great high priest says John 17:9 I ask on their behalf I do not ask on behalf of the world but of those whom you have given me for they are yours I mean, does that text astonish you like it ought? The great high priest offering his prayer of priestly intercession on behalf of those for whom he would offer himself as an atonement for sins explicitly denies interceding for the world. I do not ask on behalf of the world. How could Jesus refuse to pray for those for whom he would shed his precious blood? He couldn't. He would be a terribly faithless high priest if he did that. If he refused to intercede for those for whom he would offer himself as sacrifice. No, when it comes to those for whom he lays down his life as a priestly offering of atonement, he says, I'm not praying on behalf of the world, but only for those whom you, Father, have given me, for they are yours. And again, who are they? They are his sheep. They are the elect, those chosen by the Father before the foundation of the world. Here, upon the very precipice of his high priestly work of atonement, engaging in his high priestly work of intercession, Jesus explicitly refuses to intercede on behalf of the non-elect, but only for those whom the Father had given him. His is a particular and not a universal intercession. And since the two priestly acts of sacrifice and intercession extend to the exact same number. And since Christ says he does not intercede for the world but only for his people, therefore, it's right to conclude that he offered himself as a sacrifice, not for all without exception, but only for those whom the Father had given him. The faithfulness of our great high priest demands that the extent of Christ's atonement, like the extent of his intercession, is limited to the elect. But it's not only the unity of our triune God and the faithfulness of our great high priest that demands a particular redemption. A third biblical argument is that the power of our Savior's blood demands it as well. The power of our Savior's blood. That is to say, Christ's atonement is an efficacious atonement. It always accomplishes what it sets out to do. So much is that the case that Jesus himself casts the very glory of his atoning work in terms of its efficacy. Look at verse 4 of John 17. The son says to the father, I glorified you on the earth. How, Jesus? How have you glorified your father? Having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. The son's saving mission is is glorifying to the father because it was a work that was accomplished and not merely provided or provisional or potential. There are those who deny these truths and call themselves provisionists. We are not provisionists. We are accomplishmentists. You see, we may rejoice that we have such a Savior who has accomplished so glorious a work of salvation for us, who left nothing undone, who bore the full weight of our sins up to Calvary and extinguished our guilt before God, who drank the full measure of the wrath of God that burned hot against us so that we would never have to bear it ourselves who abolished in His flesh the enmity, the hostility that existed between us and God, reconciling us to Him in His body. The one who left no stone unturned in His mission to rescue His bride from the damnation that our sins deserved. In every way that sin afflicts us, christ we find Christ to be perfectly suited to our need. We have defiled ourselves and become guilty. But we find Hebrews nine twenty six that our Savior has put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. His atonement is a perfect expiation, an offering of sacrifice that not makes sin put awayable, but puts away sin that takes away our sin and our guilt. We have incurred the holy wrath of Almighty God. Our sin has roused the anger of perfect justice. And justice demands that His wrath be exercised upon us. And yet we find that our great high priest, Hebrews 2.17, has made propitiation for the sins of His people. That by receiving in Himself the full exercise of the Father's wrath against the sins of His people, Jesus satisfied the righteous anger of the Father against our sin and turned away God's wrath from us who were bound otherwise to suffer under it for eternity. We have alienated ourselves from the God we were created to love and enjoy. Our sin made us enemies with the greatest of friends. But in Christ Jesus, we find the reconciliation that overcomes that hostility. His atoning death destroys that enmity. Colossians 1.20, the powerful blood of His cross makes peace and it restores us to fellowship with the God we were created for. We have ruined ourselves in our slavery to sin and death. In bondage we are to the curse of the law. And yet First 1 Peter 1.19, our kinsman redeemer brings the, the ransom price of his own precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, the blood of the God-man, to redeem us out of our slavery and deliver us from captivity to sin and death. Every need that our sin creates for us, Jesus, our Savior, overcomes by his glorious, accomplished work of atonement. We have every reason to sing, oh, perfect redemption, the purchase of blood. But the doctrine of a universal redemption undermines all of that. The the most common argument from those who hold to some form of a universal atonement is to recast the atonement as provisional rather than efficacious scripture says that christ died for all for the whole world and they assume that means all without exception rather than as it so often does all without distinction jew as well as gentile people in georgia as well as california people in america as well as in iran And so, as I said at the beginning, you ask them, well, if Christ died for all without exception, are all without exception saved? And they say, no, Christ's death was provisional. He died to provide the opportunity for salvation for all, but not to infallibly secure it for anyone in particular. He died potentially for all to make it possible for them to be saved, to make them savable. And you see what's happened. The nature of the atonement itself has been deprecated it has been downgraded from an efficacious accomplishment to an inefficacious provision. You say, no, they don't actually say that. Sadly, they do. One longtime professor at a very well known evangelical seminary wrote Christ's death does not save, either actually or potentially. Rather, it makes all men savable. Another professor at a different seminary says, we cannot speak correctly of Christ's death as actually and certainly saving the elect. No, even here, the payment made by his death on behalf of the elect renders their salvation possible. I can't even imagine thinking those three sentences. We can't speak of Christ's death as actually and certainly saving the elect. But that's where all my hope is. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Everybody ransomed comes all the way home to heaven. Christ's death does not save either actually or potentially. What does? And the answer that must be given is, my decision. Ultimately, I have to add the saving power of my own will to the otherwise impotent atonement of Christ. If Christ has merely provided and not accomplished the same potential atonement for everyone, then the decisive difference between the saved and the lost is not the omnipotent grace of the Savior, but the depraved will of the sinner. J.I. Packer says, it is to say that, quote, the decisive factor that actually saves us is our own believing. He goes on, what we say comes to this, that Christ saves us with our help. And what that means when one thinks it out is this, that we save ourselves with Christ's help. You see, dear people, that is the violence that must be done to the infinite power of the Savior's blood when we seek to universalize its extent. And that is not good news. If Christ's death doesn't save us, if it only makes us save a bull, we are still damned in our sins, every last one of us. Because I don't need a cross that makes me save a bull. I need a cross that actually and certainly saves me. Can you fathom how demeaning it is to the precious blood of Christ to suggest that a single sinner whom he purchased by his blood could perish forever under the very wrath that that blood was intended to satisfy. Imagine for a moment if a friend of yours found himself in trouble with the law. Call him, I don't know, James Coates. He's been taken to jail and arraigned before a judge and his bail is set for $5,000. James can't pay his bail, but you hear about all this, you discuss it with your wife and you both decide you can spare that amount for the sake of your your friend's well-being. And so you take the money down to the courthouse, you pay the $5,000 bail and then you go back home. And you come through the door and your wife asks you, "How did it go?" You say, "Great. You paid the bail?" Yep. Sure did. No hiccups or anything. No, it all went quite smoothly. Oh, good. Well, where's James? He's in jail. What? I, I thought you said you paid the money. I did. But oh, honey, I forgot to tell you, there is a redemption that pays the price, but does not of necessity release the prisoner. And that last line is a quote from one of those same authors who deny a particular redemption. There is a redemption which pays the price, but does not of necessity release the slave. What kind of redemption is that? It's a worthless redemption. I think James would say that, still sitting in jail. A redemption that's inefficacious, a redemption that pays the price, but doesn't of necessity release the prisoner is a worthless redemption. You might as well have taken your $5,000 and lit it on fire. But is that what we are to make of the ransom price of Christ's blood? That it's worthless? That Christ would treat his own blood so dishonorably to regard it so cheap? Of course not. The blood of Christ is precious. John Owen put this like no one else ever could. He wrote, If Christ did so by them, All all without exception, the non elect, and lay out the price of his precious blood for them, and then at last deny that he ever knew them, might they not well reply, Oh Lord, was not your soul made heavy unto death for our sakes? Did you not for us undergo that wrath that made you sweat drops of blood? Did you not bathe yourself in your own blood that our blood might be spared? Did you not sanctify yourself to be an offering for us as much as for any of your apostles? Was not your precious blood by stripes, by sweat, by nails, by thorns, by spear poured out for us? Did you not remember us when you hung upon the cross? And now do you say you never knew us? Good Lord, though we be unworthy sinners, yet your own blood does not deserve to be despised? Why is it that none can lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Is it not because you die for them? Romans 8. And did you not do the same for us according to a universal atonement? Why then are we thus charged, thus rejected? Could not your blood satisfy your father, but that we ourselves must be punished? Could not justice content itself with your sacrifice? You know, the glory of that is every elect person can pray that way on the strength of Christ's blood alone. But to say that a non-elect person could pray the same way is to remove all hope that you are secure in your salvation, that you'll make it home to heaven. But besides that, it's just so demeaning to the precious blood of our Savior. And they had the audacity to call our position a limited atonement. A. A. Hodge replied, it is not we who teach a limited atonement, but our opponents. That must be a limited redemption indeed, which leaves the majority of those for whom it was designed in hell forever. See, if you universalize the extent of the atonement, you limit the efficacy of the atonement. But an atonement of unlimited efficacy necessarily extends only to those who eventually come to partake of its benefits. In other words, the power of our Savior's blood demands that every last one for whom it was shed be released from his bonds and, and finally be set free into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Charles Spurgeon had no patience for a universal atonement. He said, some say that all men are Christ's by purchase. But beloved, you and I do not believe in a sham redemption which does not redeem. We do not believe in a universal redemption which extends even to those who were in hell before the Savior died and which includes the fallen angels as well as unrepentant men. Elsewhere Spurgeon says, not one drop of Jesus' blood-bought ones was ever lost yet. Howl, howl, oh hell, but howl you cannot over the damnation of a redeemed soul. Out with the horrid doctrine that men are bought with blood and yet are damned. It is too diabolical for me to believe. What did Christ at one tremendous draft of love drink my damnation dry and I shall be damned after that? God forbid. What, shall God be unrighteous to forget the Redeemer's work for us and let the Savior's blood be shed in vain? Not hell itself has ever indulged such a thought. And then one more from Spurgeon. Unless God can undeify himself, every soul that Christ died for he will have. Every soul for which he stood as substitute and surety, he demands to have. And each of those souls he must have for the covenant stands fast. Amen. And dear friends, that is so much better news. That is so much more glorious of a gospel. Dear sinner, if you were here this morning and you are outside of Christ... If you are still laboring under the weary and heavy load of your sin, painfully aware that despite all of your efforts, you could never earn the righteousness that is required for acceptance with this infinitely holy God, I have the pleasure of offering you not the possibility of salvation. By God's unfathomable grace, I offer you salvation. I do not offer you a potential savior, I offer you the almighty Savior who stood in the place of sinners to bear all the furious fullness of the wrath of God against our sins. Who in the depths of his despair and suffering and weakness cried out in sovereign omnipotence, It is finished. Not it has begun, not it has started, not over to you, but it is finished. Oh, you who are weary and heavy laden under the burden of your sin and the fruitlessness of your own good works, you are welcome to this sovereign Savior who has no to-do list by which you might convert his gift of savability into salvation, but who by his efficacious atonement has fully accomplished salvation, a salvation to which you need add nothing. It stands merely to be received as a gift by faith alone. Dear sinner, turn from your sins, come to Christ, trust in him alone for your righteousness before God, and you shall have him. And to my brothers and sisters in Christ, if we are to preach that gospel with any integrity, we cannot preach a universal possible atonement. We must preach a particular definite atonement, the unity of our triune God, The faithfulness of our great high priest and the power of our Savior's blood demand it. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we rejoice in an accomplished redemption. How we feel ourselves so freed from the burden of our sins. How deeply we feel that burden. And how lightsome it feels to know that our Savior has borne all. It has purchased all the conditions For us that we might need to lay hold of that. And that that great condition is granted as a gift by yourself. Just the empty hand of faith that says, I'll have it. I'll take it. I want Him. I pray that you would grant that gift of faith to those who are here in this room or within the sound of my voice on the live stream who do not know you. Lord Jesus, you said, I have other sheep also and I must bring them, Lord, bring them by the preaching of your gospel this moment, get the reward of your sufferings in a certain man or woman or boy or girl's life this moment. And be exalted, dear savior, be exalted by a people who know and proclaim and who rejoice and rest in an accomplished redemption and give grace And understanding to those who struggle with these things, instruct them by the power of your Spirit in the revelation of your word that they may enter into the full treasures of the birthright of a perfect and particular redemption. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit. All rights reserved.